Well, I'm hearing um, some good things from you uh, about how maybe you've been challenged in the start of this series, and I'm really excited that as we continue to do this, pa- next week Pastor Quentin's going to be um, you know, speaking to us on love, and then the following week after that, Pastor Peter will be speaking to us, and, and it's so good to have a staff, um, other pastors that we can work with and just kind of say, let's, let's do this whole theme together. It's not just you know, the lead pastor's job or the youth pastor's job or, or, you know, someone else's, you know, when they're speaking. But really, truly, we want this to be about all of us as a church and uh, um, being able to also present together. So I'm really excited about, about that. Um, and I'm also excited about the fact that what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing, um, comments from you, is that you're taking this material, you're taking these sermons, and you're wrestling with them, and, and you're asking yourself, well, how does this then apply to my workplace? And how does this apply to, um, you know, um, places where I live and, th- and things like that? Last week, you know, we talked about Jesus being the core essential of, of the church. You know, we cannot do church without Jesus. And we cannot, you know, we cannot ever, ever say that, that well, Jesus is like secondary to anything else. So we asked the question then, well, so then what is Jesus to you? You know, if Jesus is the core essential, what is he then to you? And again, it's just been really good um, hearing um, not from a lot of you, but from some of you, just say, man, I, that has just become something I've really placed into my uh, approach to how I work and how I do the, uh, those kind of things. And so praise God. Praise God for that. Uh, today we're in the third part of this series. We started off by looking at the four pillars um, you know, of, of the church and what those were. And, and we looked at this verse that, that was read to us before that you know, the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread. Um, to fellowship and to prayer, and and what an amazing thing to to say these. This is what an essential church is. That when the church actually devotes themselves, not just knows about or not just you know does these things, but to actually be devoted. Last week we looked at the three essentials. You know Jesus, people, and then togetherness. And today I want to look at um, the quality of an essential church. All of us love. Either, you know, a business or a product or, 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 or whatever it might be, a team even. And there's certain things that we will love about that, you know, the qualities of those places or those, those items. You know, we may say, well, I really love the quality service that you get at such and such a restaurant. Uh, you will even choose your gas station maybe by the quality of service or by the quality of the place. Or, or there's some quality about that place or, or something that makes you say, I'm going to go there instead of there. And so the church needs to have qualities as well that, that draw people to Christ. And, and I think that these are, these are things that we need to say we will be focused on. Because if we do not make these the qualities that are shown to the world... I think very easily, you know, we can begin to make church something that it's not um, about. Now, before we get too much further, I need to give you kind of a Webster's Dictionary on what I mean when we talk about qualities, okay? A quality is a characteristic or a feature that someone or something has. Something that can be noticed as part of a person or a thing, okay? So a feature, a characteristic, something that something or someone has, okay? So what are the characteristics or the the qualities or the features that the church has and and these are the things that we need to be focused on showing to the rest of the world now the here's the sad the scary thing about qualities is that they can be either good or bad you've all been in a place where you're like oh my goodness like 
the features or the, the characteristics of this place are so negative, I will never come back to that. Or, or this product has been such a disappointment that, that I will never, ever use it again. And you may even go above and beyond and tell other people, never buy a whatever. And you're like, oh, didn't know. You know and other people are like, wow. So you've actually deterred others from making decisions or, or buying a certain thing because your experience with that was so negative. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves this morning, the church has at times shown characteristics or features that are not God Christ-like. And it has turned people away from the church. And it has, you know, been an impact in how the church is viewed um, by, by those who are outside the church. So we want to look at three qualities that this church must focus on, that this church must, you know, show to the world as we, as we go through um, continuing to live for Christ. Now I want to look at this morning in 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, we're, we're going to jump out of Acts for a little bit. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians. We'll be back in, into that, uh, you know, uh, Acts is a, a key book for us as a church. And so in the fu future when we go back to the series, we'll be back in there. But today I want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now let me give you a really quick little history about the, Tesla, the church in Thessalonica. Because it may help us a little bit with understanding what Paul is saying and why he is writing the things that, he's, and that he does here. Thessalonica was a bustling seaport city. Uh, it was in a very important communication and trade center. Uh, some major roads connected right in that area. It was the largest city of, the Ma of Macedonia. It was also the capital of the province. And a lot of people passed through this city. And so this was one of those places where, you know, if you needed information, there's a number of other ports or cities like this in the New Testament. But when you needed information... Thessalonica was a city that would have had a lot of different, you know, uh, influences and things like that. And so it was a bustling city. The background of Thessalonica, or the, uh, of, uh, the, the book of Thessalonian church, is found in Acts chapter 17, verse 1 to 9. This is where you read, you know, of Paul and Silas and Timothy going to this region, to this area, and starting a church. And since Paul began his ministry in the Jewish synagogues, as you read in Acts chapter 17, it's very clear that there would have been Jewish people in this church. However, when you continue to read, and you read in different parts, like um, in this book, uh, Thess uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, and also Acts chapter 17, verses 4, it becomes clear very quickly that this church would have also had a, probably a larger majority of the people would have been Gentiles. And if you know anything about, you know, the Jewish history, the culture, and the Gentile history and culture, this would have created some tension. And this would have created, you know, um, some, you know, obstacles for the, the church to wrestle through, which, you know, obviously will probably impact some of how Paul writes to this church. The th uh, central theme of this book, of 1 Thessalonians, is eschatology. And eschatology is the doctrine of the last things. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming of Jesus. Um, with chapter 4 giving major, major time to this doctrine, to the do doctrine of the end times. So again, that's an important thing for us to know. Um, you know, we, if we were studying this book, we would have to wrestle then with the question, of, well, what, would have, what questions did this church bring up that would have made Paul spend so much time talking about the end times? 
and about the promise that Jesus was going to come again. And so we're going to look into that a little bit. But one thing that we know, do know about this church from Acts chapter 17 is that this church was also experiencing um, severe persecution, and that, that there was persecution. We read in Acts chapter 17, and we'll look at this more later, but we read here that the people, the Jewish people, were, were going after Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they were trying to capture them. They were hoping to round them up. And so clearly the church was under persecution. Well, that may be part of the reason why Paul wanted to spend so much time talking about, you know, the second coming of Jesus. And we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more. Paul left um, Thessalonica very abruptly after a rather brief stay. Uh, we read, like I said, that the Jews tried to round them up. They were jealous of Paul and Silas and, and Timothy. And we don't know for sure, but it sounds like Timothy may have stayed and only Paul and Silas left because later on, you know, Timothy isn't mentioned. And then shortly after, he is again. And so anyway... Won't worry about that too much, but nonetheless, Paul and Silas had to very abruptly leave Thessalonica because there was, you know, Jewish people who were jealous of them, of the ministry that they had there, and they were trying to round them up. And so they left. Now, you got to understand now, you have a very new church. Uh, most of the people in the church would have, you know, because they were Gentiles, would have converted from paganism to Christianity. And so here you have this, this young church, this, uh, you know, church of you know, non, you know, new believers and maybe, you know, some non-believers coming in and listening and hearing what's going on. At the same time, they're also, uh, um, you know, facing um, persecution. They have very little exterior, um, external support in the midst of this persecution. So Paul's purpose for writing this church is to encourage them uh, to, you know, help these new converts through the trials that they are facing. He also gives them instructions on godly, godly living. And to assure them, um, to assure them uh, of the concerns that they had of the future of believers who died before Christ's uh, return. Now, that's a, that's a lot of uh, stuff that we could look in, but I want to take just a few minutes to focus on that. This church, there were people in this church who were very concerned. Well, what happens to us when we die and if Jesus hasn't come back? You know, their view of eschatology, their view of the end times was that, that Jesus would come back before they die. And then he would take them to heaven. And, and if that doesn't happen, if we die now before Jesus comes back, I mean, what happens to us? And so Paul spends time explaining this because clearly that would have been a major concern to a church that was facing persecution. If I'm going to be executed possibly for, for my belief in Jesus before Jesus returns, well, what happens to me? And I think that that's a very valid concern for people till, uh, till, um, still today. You know, what, what, what exactly happens? And so Paul addresses some of those things in this church. So the question that we then have to ask is, we have this new church, this, you know, new converts in a time of persecution. You know, um, in some ways you would say almost baby Christians, many of them. Um, and yet at the same time, here they are new to the faith and they're facing yes or no, death or life questions in, in situations where if they don't hold to. So what do you write to a church like that? What is it that you would focus on, you know, reminding them of? And one of the things that you see Paul do almost right away, and it's easy to skip because it's in his introduction to this book. One of the things that you see Paul do is he reminds the church of their qualities. This is, in other words, these are the qualities that you have. And he literally says, every time I pray, I remi I'm reminded of these things when I pray for you. So when I pray, I, I'm re God reminds me, I'm reminded before God 
of the qualities of these three qualities that you have. And so let's take a moment and dive in and read them. Uh, we're going to start in verse, in verse 2. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. If you don't have your Bible, it's on your screen. But you have heard me say this many times. I would love for you to either look at your screen um, for yourself or your Bible because I'd love for you to mark things up so that you can read these things again later on. Here's, here's what it says, verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now verse one, chapter 1, verse 2, my bad, sorry. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith and your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Before our gospel came to you, not because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you, among you for your sake. Paul is saying here, hey, first off, <clears throat> there are three qualities that we remember about you, but these qualities are not just because you're good people. He's like, you guys are where you are. You know, we didn't just tell you to live a new way or live differently, but rather the Holy Spirit convicted you in a deep kind of way. You, were, you, had, you experienced this deep conviction of the Holy Spirit that made you the church that you are today. So I want to jump back to verse 3 because this is where we want to just kind of land today and look at it. So let me read it again. It's, it's, uh, I underlined it for you so you, don't, um, you won't skip it. Remember before, we remember before God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the three qualities that Paul's like, <clears throat> here's what I know about you as a church. So I want to write to you as a congregation who are new in the faith, who, <laughs> you know, had us leave very abruptly without being able to give some of the instructions you maybe needed. And you're facing persecution. You have these two very different cultures in the church. But he says, before God, when I these are the qualities that I remember about you. That you have, that you work, that your work is produced by faith, that your labor is prompted by love, and that your endurance is inspired by hope. So let's take a moment now and let's look at all three of these. Let's look at all three of these. The first one is this: that their work was produced, <coughs> excuse me, their work was produced by faith. Faith is described in Hebrews chapter 11 as this. Now faith is, being, is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is being confident in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. In other words, we believe that Jesus is the Lord of Lords through faith. It is our faith. And sometimes people say, well, we need to prove these things. You, you need to prove these things. And, and I know that that's <clears throat> maybe a weak argument sometimes to say, well, my faith is all I need. Because there are lots and lots, there's lots and lots of proof for God's existence. But there are certain things about God that we just simply acknowledge, we accept, we embrace, we are changed by through faith. Faith is an active principle. Far too many Christians experience faith by words only. And do not do the deeds or the actions of their faith. So they might say, well, I believe that with Jesus everything is possible. I believe that, that Jesus is Lord of Lords. And I believe, you know, these things. And they'll express these words of faith. 
but their actions don't necessarily match their words. This was a church whose work, whose actions, whose deeds were produced by faith. In other words, the, 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 the faith that they had was acted out on. They lived those things. You could say that their faith in Jesus was strong enough that although they faced tremendous persecution, they did not, that did not hinder them from the work that Christ had called them to do, to do. Faith is also the awakening of the soul to the reality of life. To hold, you know, the truth of God, the power of God. So faith awakens the soul to the reality of life. You know, that God is more powerful than anything else. That our life is not only, you know, accomplished through our own power, but by faith we are awakened to the reality that God's power is with us and that with Him we can do all things. Faith awakens us to the, also to the responsibility that we have and the power that God gives us to fulfill His call in our lives. A person who, is tr who truly lives by faith, I believe, experiences the work of God in a way that someone who does not can't experience it. Another thing that you see here is faith is the inspiration to fulfill all the duties of life. That they, that they fulfill the duties of life not only out of obligation, but Rather, as James says in James, that, that when we see someone in need, we don't merely wish them well and then go about our, our ways without doing something. So faith inspires us to fulfill the duties, even those that we are not obligated to do. And I've seen this in many of you. You, you, you see a need and you meet a need. You see a problem and you're like, you know what, that really isn't my problem. Or that really isn't that need or that concern or that person. I don't even really know them. But you know what? I'm going to help them or I'm going to serve them. I'm going to spend time with them. Not because you feel obligated to, but because your faith inspires you to. That's one of the beauties of, of having a deep faith. And so Paul is saying here, your work is produced by faith. So you will go and do things beyond what you feel are your obligations you will do these things because of your faith in Jesus. Faith is also the full persuasion of the truth of the gospel. What I mean by that is that this church worked believing that the gospel of Jesus changes people's lives. When we have faith, our faith, when we do work based on and produced by our faith, it is because of the full persuasion of the truth of the gospel. We believe through faith that yes, Jesus still changes lives. I know this for sure, that there will be all of our senior youth leaders are going to go to senior youth this coming Friday, very different than they maybe have in the past. If you haven't heard yet, pretty cool things happened on Friday. Ten kids rededicated their life to Jesus, and three kids gave their life to Christ for the first time. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that those leaders and the youth pastor, Pastor Peter, and the team that worked with these kids are going to show up this Friday, again, persuaded by faith that God still changes lives. And in this early church, one of the qualities that they had was that their work was produced by faith. You see, we as a church, we can be busy. We can work. We can be about all kinds of things. But if it is not our faith that is producing that work, 
we will probably end up more exhausted and tired or, or miserable in what we do. So we need to make sure that the work that we do is produced by faith in Christ. This was a quality that Paul points out today. And I think, to, you know, in our day today, we need to make sure that we are still out working because of the faith that we have in Jesus, that we believe, that we hold fast to the truth that God still changes lives. The second one that you see, the second quality that you see here is love. They labored, their, their work was, or their, the church had a labor of love. They labored, you know, um, their labor was prompted by love. Labor for love re, um, distinguishes between the ordinary work of the church and the efforts necessary to fulfill Christ's call in our lives. And what I mean by that is, very similar to what I just mentioned, but the church can have just ordinary things that it does. We take an offering, we sing some songs, we meet together, and these, you know, this takes some labor, this takes some work. And we do these things, we, we, we you know, give to certain things, and just kind of we, we do these things, these are just the ordinary things that the church does. This early church, their quality was that love, the quality of the, the love that they had was that their labor was prompted by love. In other words, they didn't just do the ordinary work of the church, they went way beyond and did things that, that were obviously prompted by love. The cross was very heavy for them. You know, they, they were constantly, you know, burdened by trials. Their faith was constantly being, being challenged. Love was what stood in the gap. What is it that makes you go beyond what you need to do? What will it be that will make this church go beyond just the things that we normally do? What is it that will make us as a church go outside of our walls? It better be love. And if we truly have a love for God and a love for people, then suddenly we don't want to stay here. We, this, is, this place can't contain us. And, and Paul is saying here that, that your labor was prompted by love. They had such an incredible love for, for people and for God that, that they were willing to labor, not just to do the, the ordinary work of the church, but they were willing to go far beyond what is ordinarily required of a church. Now, again, I have been in this church long enough to see this in this church. We have seen people sacrifice, and we have sacrificed as a church many, many times. We have labored on behalf of people that we did not necessarily need to. Why? Because we have a love for God. We have a love for people. So this is a quality that must be evident in a church. It's a labor of love when everything seems to go against you, but you continue on. When, we, when what we stand for is constantly hated on. When our values are constantly objected or ridiculed, we labor on in love. Not because, you know, well, this is just the ordinary things. But we, we don't give up. We don't get discouraged. We don't get distracted. We don't, we don't throw our hands up and say, well, why is everybody against us? We, we believe in faith. When Jesus says that, you know, the world will hate you, but it hated me first, we understand that. So we will continue to labor on in love because we have a love for God and a love for people that will prompt us to continue, to continue on, even when there is opposition. It is a labor of love when we are persecuted by those whom we seek to save. 
I'm sure I could ask for a show of hands here and there'd be many of you that would say, yeah, I know what that's like. I tried to help someone, but instead of thanking me, instead of accepting my help, instead of, you know, showing gratitude, they hated on me. They actually, you know, rejected me. It's a labor of love when we continue to try to help those even when they don't want the help that we have. It is a trying ordeal to benefit others while they are injuring us. We have a severe lesson to learn when, it, uh, when, uh, when we must love those who hate us. This is going to be a difficult thing, but we know in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Some of you in this room have faced this kind of persecution. And you, you gave your life to Jesus, and, and maybe you wanted to reach the rest of your family or the rest of your friends, and they just, no way, we want nothing to do with you. It is a labor of love to continue to serve those who now reject you. And yet this was a quality of this early church. We are instructed by Jesus to love those who oppose us, to pray for those who persecute us. This was a quality of this early church. This is what made them so attractive, that they continued to love even in those moments when everyone seemed to be opposed to them. It is a labor of love when we uh, love not for ourselves, but we love for those who follow. Sometimes this will mean laboring in love for others to enjoy the fruit of our labor. Sometimes this will mean that we will labor in love. We will, we will do things that we will never experience the fruit of for ourselves. Any parent in the room can understand that principle. That you love your children and you raise them and you sacrifice for them. And you may never ever receive the fruit or the reward of that. But you don't care. You love your kids. You would do anything for them. Even if, you, even if you knew there was nothing coming back your way ever. It's a labor of love. Sometimes when we go and we labor on behalf of people who will enjoy the fruit of our labor and we will get nothing in return. That was the quality of this early church. And then lastly, is Paul points out the quality of hope. Patience and hope. This was a climax. We must bear. We must, we must remember this hope that we have, this, this quality that we know that one day we, ha we have this hope in God that others do not have. Hope in the church is played out in a way, two ways. One, it takes hold of God's strength. It leans on the certainty that nothing is impossible with God. And so we hold on by faith. We, we have this hope that in moments of trial, in moments of difficulty, nothing is impossible with God. The second way that we are patient in hope is, in a, is a deep conviction that Christ will return. That what we experience here on earth is not in vain. It is not forgotten or overlooked. Jesus will come again. This was something that Paul spends a lot of time in, in this, um, the book of 1 Thessalonians, because it seemed that he needed to constantly remind the congregation that, yes, Jesus will come again. That, that what you're experiencing isn't for nothing. That you haven't been forgotten. And I wonder maybe there are some of us here that need to be reminded of that today. That your trials, your hardships are not in vain. That 
although the times are difficult and although maybe there are moments where you're like, is it, you know, <clears throat> is this really worth it? You know, I know for myself, <clears throat> it's maybe not really good to admit as a pastor, but there's been times in my life where I, I'm looking around going like, really? Like there's, a, there's an afterlife after all this? Like this isn't it? Because if this is it, this is discouraging. This is frustrating. So the quality of this church <clears throat> and the quality that we must have is this patience and hope. Believing that Jesus will come back again. Let me read you some verses that I hope will just maybe really um, convict you of this. Matthew chapter 24 verse 30 it says this. Then will appear in the, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the cloud of heaven with great power and with great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from, uh, from, from one end of the heavens to the other. <clears throat> Jesus goes on to say in verse 36, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor the, uh, only, but only the Father. So here we have a moment where Jesus is saying, no one knows exactly when the Son of Man will return. But at the same time, he never throws into question that the Son of Man will return. I don't know about you, but maybe you're at a place in your life and you're, you're considering losing heart. Or maybe you're losing heart. Maybe you're, maybe you're becoming discouraged. So let us not grow impatient or give up hope. Let us remain patient in our hope, knowing that Jesus will return one day. I can't imagine for <clears throat> someone who is like this early church, who is experiencing persecution, what an amazing comfort that must have been to know that one day Jesus truly will return and we will be with him for eternity. Jesus will return victorious. His name is above every name. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation chapter 12, uh, 22 verse 12, it says this. Jesus is speaking to John and he says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right, may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to give you this testimony for the church. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, and this is Jesus speaking again, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. I don't know what goes through your mind 
when you hear that. But one of the incredible things that encourages me in the midst of that is that in those times as a pastor, in those times as just a, uh, as a Christian, as a church, there are those moments in our lives where maybe we become discouraged. Maybe we're asking, what's the point? What are we supposed to do? And I don't know where you stand today, but I trust that for you, this, this patience in hope is enough for you today to say that whatever I'm experiencing, whatever I'm going through, I will continue and I will carry on because what God has called me to is worth everything. So the church, three qualities. Their work is produced by faith. We labor because of our love. And we are patient for our, um, in hope. If you notice maybe this morning I'm a little bit... <clears throat> I'm a little thrown off. That's okay. Um, things happen sometimes that do that. But um, I just trust that as we think about us as a church and the qualities that we have, that we would be a church that would show these three qualities. Folks, let us never think that there is not work to do. Let us never tire of laboring for those who may never give us any reward in return let us never give up hope that one day jesus will return and that all the work that we've done all the sacrifices that we've made all the challenges that we face they will all be worth it because god is faithful let's pray god i thank you so much that um in our lives, these qualities can all be lived out individually. I thank you so much that we can also live these out as a congregation. Father, I pray for those that come in contact with us throughout this year. That what they would see in us is a willingness to, to work, a willingness to labor, and a patience in your timing. Father, I pray that we would never grow weary, but that our faith, that our faith in you, that as we saw fulfilled again this week, of just how in the right moments, in the right time, you, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, can grab hold of people's lives and change them for eternity. We thank you for that. Father, I know that sometimes this will mean that we will end up in places where we are not loved, we are maybe persecuted, where we're maybe even ridiculed. And, and for some in this room, that may be their families, that may be their workplaces, that may be their communities or whatever, whatever place it may be. Lord, I pray that in those moments, that one of the qualities that we would exercise is that we would be willing to labor in love. Thank you so much for that. And then, Father, ultimately, we thank you for the truth of your return, that you will come again. That all of this is not in vain. And we thank you, Jesus, for that. And we look forward to that day. In your name I pray.